0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Waters Fishing Podcast, getting produced by the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. I appreciate y'all tuning in for this week's episode. Uh, this week, we're going to be following up again with Bryce Roberts from Tennessee River Monsters. Up in Tennessee, from our episode we did last episode, we are talking all things striper fishing, specifically with the big glide baits, swim baits, stuff like that. This week, we're going to dive into some other topics, specifically on stripers and how Bryce is kind of using some different technology uh, in order to kind of find and locate these fish and, and really catch these fish. So Bryce, appreciate you joining me, man, and I'm super excited to have this conversation again with you.
2: Yeah, man, I'm glad to be back. I said I had uh, we had a good talk last time, so I expect another
0: one. Yeah, absolutely. It's like uh, it's fun when you find somebody, uh, which, of course, you know, if you're doing what you're doing, you know, you're passionate about. It, but it's fun when I find somebody's you know, passionate about fishing and also willing to kind of share some information and see other people kind of have success because it is it makes it for fun conversations to kind of figure out. Like, again, selfishly, you know, some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, I personally want to go use on some different bodies of water. When it comes to targeting big stripers, because that's one thing we've never done. Uh, I think I might have mentioned in last week's episode uh, with you that the only striper I've really ever caught was bycatch while we were growing up trolling big, uh, big uh, uh, diving crankbaits on Lake Martin down in Alabama, on um, Tallapoosa River, and for, just for largemouth. Like we would just troll for fish. Uh, in a pontoon boat and had like a 13 13 pound striper bite and that's about it so um yeah. <laughs> this is this is interesting and again it's a species specifically with stripers that i think a ton of people have a lot of interest in just because it seems like there's a lot less known about them. like when I, we've talked to dr steve sammons from auburn university like the research done on stripers is nothing like what's been done on largemouth bass smallmouth bass even crappie to be honest um, so yeah. there's a lot left to be unknown, but also I think another interesting thing about the species is just how big they get. And we kind of talked about that last week with some of the absolute mega giants that y'all have caught up there. Uh, you know, both you, with, you, with, uh, clients and also kind of you solo as well, but to kind of kick us off and kind of get us back into this kind of conversation, Bryce, um, to kind of maybe jump off from last week's episode into this episode when listeners had heard on last week's episode or, or last episode it actually came out two weeks ago. Uh, with you talking about the importance of Garmin LiveScope or front or forward-facing sonar in order to kind of find these fish. Um, That's something I really want to talk to you about today and kind of dive into. But previously, before using LiveScope and that kind of forward-facing sonar, what was y'all's methods or your methods in order to find fish and put clients on fish?
2: Um, Yeah, so before the forward-facing or LiveScope or whatever – um basically we was using technology and um it was just side imaging, down imaging, and two D sonar. Before side imaging and down imaging really got big, we just I was just using strictly two D sonar. And what I would do is i just go out, drive the river channels or a uh, little deep deep spots in the river, kind of check and see if I found them arches anywhere. Um, you know, the side imaging aspect on it really gave me an advantage also though, you know, compared to that 2D because a lot of times on that 2D you're seeing strictly like, you'll see arches, but you ain't for sure yet what they are. Like So now that I had the down scan, I could put the down down scan on and I could actually see to make sure it just wasn't a tree showing as an arch rather than me thinking, oh, it's just a, there's two big fish and I drop a bait down and it's instantly in a tree. <laughs> Excuse me. And, uh, you know, the side imaging aspect of it, that was a big deal. You know, once I got honed in on the, uh, I was using Hummingbird for the longest time, that mega imaging, man, it was a game changer. I said, I could see every fish. You could see their shadows outside the edge of the current breaks and stuff like that. You just see, and that's how I was using it. And um, that was basically. What we had, and then you had the 360, which I didn't really get familiar with as much just because that was more of a bash thing that I thought. But knowing now what I know, that's another good aspect, you know, another good uh, piece of technology you can use for it. But that's what I've used basically before I caught the old days um, compared to now before the uh, before the forward-facing sonar um, was just 2D.
0: And we're going to talk more about that, but before another aspect of technology – was the integration in the industry with um, spot lock technology, GPS technology with troll motors? Like Minikota mm-hmm. uh, being a big proponent now, pretty much every manufacturer has their own version of, of you know, spot lock technology where you can hit a button and GPS in the unit and in the, in the troll motor can kind of hold position even in some current. Um, so you can kind of stay on fish without having an anchor before that technology what was y'all's way about especially if you wanted to fish a specific spot were you guys using you know like power poles beforehand were y'all using anchor systems like what was the what was the idea of how you would you know affix a boat to a location in order to fish you know you know current seams or eddy breaks or anything like that
2: yes yeah, so i was um i was born kind of uh, a lower class to middle class but i said i was always broke i said i spent my money elsewhere on everything else. So I never had it. I never had uh, shallow water anchors, like power poles, talons, all that good stuff. They were just old school throw an anchor out or top on a tree close to the bank that you thought fish were on get above them and just tie up. I said, I never had that. Uh, I wish I would have, you know, now they got, I think anchors that actually pull themselves up. I was like, I've never had that. we was using center blocks. Um, that was our, that was our spot lock and our, uh, anchoring system. But, um, that's what we used.
0: Now, also, when it comes to, like, the the overall technology side, because where I want to kind of take this episode is showing, like, the value of the technology, but also how y'all were still successful before the technology, but how the technology uh, compounded that success. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that just from, like, early on, like, the the success y'all had before the integration of some of these different technologies with, like, SpotLock and uh, forward-facing sonar? um, And then kind of how did that change when you started integrating that into y'all's system?
2: yeah um so before i had i mean i, I kind of my first boat was a 15 foot uh low like tiller my papa passed away and had a brand new motor the guy called stuck like, he bought this but um what i would uh, so my first little boat was a 15 footer but I, my first trolling motor ever was a Minn Kota trova and this is back in 2008 9 so it's right when the, the it was actually a power drive so they had a option on the power drive you could get a co-pilot which had this it wasn't a spot lock it was called anchor mode but it would it was the worst spot lock in the world but um that's what i kind of started out on so i never really had that just normal um i'm trying to think what just normal foot pedal uh never no spot lock something but i always had something to keep me kind of anchored but um basically oh excuse me sorry can you hear me oh yeah you're good yeah sorry you might want to ask that question again. My, my, I've seen that name pop up on my phone. I kind of forgot.
0: Yep. No worries. Um, so, um, I'll, I'll put that down. Okay. So before, so, before you started, you know, having all this technology, you know, y'all were still fishing, you know, before all the Spotlight technology with the trolling motors along with, uh, you know, the forward-facing sonar. What was y'all's fishing style back then like? And, again, how y'all found success and then how did that change when you started integrating the newer technology onto your boat?
2: Okay. So um, before SpotLock and all that, um, the one benefit I think I did have with it was um, probably that I didn't, I wasn't making as much noise due to the fact that now SpotLock is kind of noisy. Um, that I think that definitely benefited me because I'm not up there making a lot of ruckus, but also um, before the SpotLock, Came about, um, I think I covered more water rather than would stay in spots. I know it sounds kind of weird, you're like, well, that don't have nothing to do with it, but that spot lock feature gave me the um, access to sit in places without having to worry about wind and all that. Why, with before the spot lock, I would actually move more and cover a little more water. I don't know if that kind of makes sense to you, but um, Down here in the river systems, I tend to get on spots and I like to stay on them now that I have it. But before then, I would cover a lot more water. And I I think sometimes it kept me uh, before spot would actually keep me moving more, um, which I think sometimes benefited me. Um, I think now that we have spotlock, though, I catch a lot more fish due to the fact I can stay on spots longer. But um, I think rather than the old days, I could kind of use it. um, I could cover more water. Um, I wasn't destined to stay in one area. It would kind of keep me moving, if that makes sense. It's kind of hard to describe what I'm talking about. But um, nowadays that I got it, <laughs> um, excuse me, uh, it gives me more opportunity. Like, So if we get a lot of wind or something like that, I can stay in the zone. I can uh, play that wind. I can fish a bait a certain way. I can uh, not get blown off the spot. If there's spooky fish in the area, I can stay way off of them without making a lot of noise. Um, it's just it, the overall aspect at on SpotLock is just crazy to me. I said um, there's benefits and there are dis- disadvantages to it, but overall, it is a game changer.
0: And kind of <laughs> to give listeners an, an idea, so if you're not familiar with SpotLock, it's technology that's uh, came about, I guess, God, uh, maybe is it six, seven years now already that they've been doing it? Um, it's been around for a little while now. And uh, and now pretty much all the major manufacturers of trolling motors offers this kind of feature with like one of their higher end trolling motors, but with this technology it allows you to be able to hit a button typically on the uh, the drive system on the on the on the pedal drive and be able to or it's or it's actually mounted onto the front of your boat uh, as a separate button that allows it to literally keep its position in current or you know with wind or whatever by spinning that drive around and keeping the same spot so you don't have to worry about messing with the troll motor. All you do is just fish, uh, which is super, super, super handy, especially if you're fishing in current. Now, the, the flip side, though, to it, with a spot lock technology and the, the troll motor being mounted on, on, on the front of the boat, how has that changed – boat positioning as in i'm guessing when you were using uh like a cinder block as an anchor and or tied up to trees you're always trying to get up river where you thought the fish were and then present baits from up river and let it kind of drift down towards the fish now with spot lock are you doing a little bit more from kind of being just downriver to them and present that bait you know you know cast it up or let drift up um or do you yeah. or do you do the same thing of put spot lock on and then you're fishing off the back of the boat
2: yeah, so nowadays, well, like I was telling you earlier, you know, I used to have to drop an anchor and then I'd have to actually let, we always ran 150 foot anchors. So we'd let ourselves back way back so we could get on the spot. So we didn't spook them fish. Nowadays, I kind of just ease back a little closer and just strictly fish off the back. Um, the, the current, especially in current, cause that's what I mainly fish. Um, the, the Garmin force that I use is super quiet. And they don't, they don't. Um, but it's 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 a feature that's not necessary, but it really benefits me in the river compared to what I was used to doing. Because I think a lot of times back in the heyday, I would throw an anchor and it splash, or I drop it and when it hit bottom, I think that noise would echo all through the river system. And uh, nowadays, I can just lightly put my trolling motor down, push the one button go in the back with my clients and to having a remote is another cool benefit from it that all the trolling motors have basically these days I can just push a button, sit back around my client say they hook a fish and I can be one-on-one with them, guiding them through it rather than, hold on, let me go up here and hit the trolling motor. Hold on. What's he doing running back there? Let me see the drag. Let me do all this. So now that spot lock feature, I can get, you know, I can just be away from the front of the boat and be with my clients the whole time.
0: Yep. Awesome. Now, is that something, you know, while we're talking about the technology aspect, and we're going to talk about some other stuff. We're going to talk some more stuff specifically with the fishing of, you know, if someone wanted to use a live bait, how to go about actually finding and catching live bait, which we're going to get to a little bit later in this episode. But early on <laughs> in, in this episode, talking about this, you know, topic specifically with, like, the spotlight technology and trolling motors, is that something that you feel is a must on a boat? Or do you think you can still do kind of a little bit more old school way, you know, with a long anchor, anchor rope, you know, some kind of anchor, um, and, and do it from that perspective. Do you think you know people can still learn to be successful that way, or would you say it's worth the investment right off the bat if they have it in order to get you know a trailer with spotlock technology?
2: Um, here's my standpoint on it. Guys were catching big fish before spotlock. Guys were catching uh, a lot of a lot more fish probably before spotlock. Spotlock has its, like I said earlier, it has its benefits and it has its disadvantage. So. Th- if, if I had, a, if some guy came off the street and said, Hey man, i want to get in fishing and I'm going to buy a boat. Uh, what kind of trolling motor then? I'm going to say, here's the deal. Financially, it has to be good for you. Um, if your budget's $500, then obviously I wouldn't get spot unless you find a crazy good deal. Cause it's not necessary unless, um, it ain't even really necessary. Cause you can just use other tools. Like I'm telling you about drop an anchor, um, put, you know, type on the bank, or if you got a little more budget, and you like $1,000 uh, to $1,500 because you can find them Trello Motors with that feature on it for that, uh, depending on what brand you go with. Then I'd say, get it. Because I said, it's a, um, for me and my guide business, it's a must. Because there's times if I didn't have it, um, I, I, I kind of get myself in trouble in some current areas um, just due to the fact that if, if one of my clients catches a big fish, <clears throat> And I'm trying to hold position uh, in current, especially like catfishing or something like that. Um, if, I, if I get blown off of it by the wind or something like that, then too, I lose that. Uh, I might lose that spot and never find it again, even though I got GPS. But it's kind of hard to ever get in that right zone. But um, if it was me, I'd say it's depending on the person's financial reason and how serious they are. If you're not really dead serious into fishing and you're not making a living off of it, I don't think it's a necessity. Um, if you're doing it to make money, and uh, and I think it will benefit you, uh, then I say get it. You know, I don't want to tell nobody no bad advice because I said I don't know people's financial situations. Um, it was a burden. It was it was a super big uh, ordeal when I bought my first spot lock motor. I was like, oh, dude, eighteen hundred dollars is going to kill me. But in the long run, it paid off because I said catching bait and doing everything else now with current down here, it's uh, benefited me tremendously.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And Also, uh, I want to talk about boat positioning and a fishing, uh, fishing standpoint when you're using anchor systems. Um, so, you, you mentioned with spot luck, it seems like even with spot luck, you're kind of getting upriver the fish and you're kind of fishing off the back of the boat uh, more times than not. I guess specifically with live bait. Mm-hmm. How does that change if you use an artificial, like if you're throwing those big glide baits like we talked about in last week's episode? Is that more off the front of the boat, like you're casting upstream, upriver, and then kind of bring it back across the top of them? Or do you still kind of fish off the back of the boat, depending on the positioning?
2: It all depends on the positioning. So if I'm by myself and I have say I have spot lock, I'll get ahead of them, depending on how much current, because it's all dependent on current. Uh, a lot of times I actually try to if I'm if I'm fishing a river system, I'm always fishing up the river. So I kind of stay on the nose of the boat for that situation if there's barely any current and I can just easily go up river, um, or just want to spot lock and hit a hit a tree ahead of me. But a lot of times if I'm, if I'm uh, fishing like a, a hole in the river or a big eddy, I put it on spot lock and get up above it, and I'll actually pull myself down. Uh, I'll actually walk to the back of the boat and strictly fish off the back. Because I said, um, with that benefit, you know, I can be wherever I want with spot lock and current, so I just get wherever I get comfortable, and I just fish out of the back of the boat because I don't need to be. But if I have clients or got two people in there, I always kind of use my, um, my troll motor spotlight toward the back guy, my client. So I'm benefiting him depending on where I'm at. But I said, it all has to do too with wind and, uh, you know, how hard the current is. Cause you know, if you get a, a big wind gust coming from down, downstream mm. and you're spot locking with current and there's not enough current to keep you tight and it's blowing the back end out, then you got to kind of adjust and I have to actually get on the spot where the fish are because the wind's stronger than the, uh, the current. And then you're kind of blowing in circles. A lot of times when that happens, I just take it off spot log and just ease way out and just kind of just use my own foot pedal or remote and just kind of hit myself, uh, up or down or whatever. Just keep myself straight. So just depends on your situation with, uh, what the current and the wind and every, everything else doing and where the positioned position at.
0: now on the flip side, anchoring, um, because, again, I, I don't have spotlight technology on, on our boat. So I'm looking at this from like a, a you know, questioning from like a foot pedal driven uh, trolling motor, like a simple, like you said, like a, you know, sub $1,000 setup um, versus an anchor system. Fishing that way, live bait versus artificial how do you try to position your boat based off where you think those fish are going to be stacked up on? Especially, I get two situations. One, if there's quite a bit of current, where definitely more than likely those fish are going to be facing directly upstream, kind of like behind mm-hmm. something or whatever, try to feed at, versus if it's a little bit lighter current where they could kind of be positioning swimming. However, how does boat positioning work with an anchor? And then how do you look from a fishability standpoint with an anchor, with both live bait and also artificial?
2: Yeah. So, say in your standpoint, without spa lock, I'm actually going to go with the current and I'm going to pull like a planer board and just, and I'm just going to sit on the front of the boat and I'm just going to keep my foot on the foot pedal and kind of work that planer board toward um, the bank. And I'm going to sit down the trees. I said, that's kind of your only option unless you just want to get a chair up there. Uh, oh, I call it the old man style uh, and, and sort of just keep your foot on it. And you can kind of spot lock yourself uh, with that foot pedal or just put on continuous, keep your foot on the trolling motor and just kind of, fan yourself back and forth and stay find that certain speed on your trolling motor and just kind of hover there if you got the spot lock feature then obviously what i'll do is i'll get ahead of the spot if i'm say i got fish down river from me in current in a hole a eddy i will put a planer board out spot lock myself and just send that bait down and let the current catch that planer board to pull it out in a zone and i just sit there that way i'm not having to move i'm just putting the pushing the planter board in the big bait right in the zone. And I said, I just sit there. I don't have to do nothing. That is a benefit of the spot lock feature is that I can go ahead of these holes. Say you got a big eddy down river or some hole that some area there's fish holding in trees. And I can literally spot lock above it, put my bait out and just anchor them on myself and let my bait just sit there right over that tree. And I said to entice that fish to come up and come out of the tree and eat. I said, then if I got a remote with spot lock, just fan my boat out as soon as he hits and go straight out toward the main channel because you know he's going to go right back into it but if I'm in your position um, foot pedal man I'm just sitting up here and I'll actually instead of you know most of us striper guys got rod holders but if you're not in that standpoint use your foot just keep it on continuous and go down riverway. hold your rod I said you can do both I said it don't matter that's what I started out doing so I said, uh, you just can't put as many baits out a lot of times. But the good thing about not having spot lock and holding that rod is that you can actually, by hand, adjust that uh, rod and reel or that bait in whatever position you want. If you want to let it get farther toward the trees, you can just let it line out by hand. You're not having to sit back and then focus on the trolling motor while you got spot lock and uh, something like that. And just keep on feeding back and forth rather than you're kind of hands on the whole time working that bait in and out of the cover.
0: Okay, interesting. Now, also, so that's more so for like the live bait perspective. If somebody wanted to kind of take some of your advice from like last week, talking about you know throwing big glide baits, big swim baits, a rig stuff like that, how do how does this take in consideration again? If someone just has like again just a, a normal foot you know power or, you know foot control trolling motor and or just an anchor system, how would they go about using that in, in a similar situation where you have you know fish kind of like you know in one of those similar spots, one of those holes, one of those eddies kind of in the middle of the river, you know, where you get some down timber, like under the water. And when we're talking about trees, guys, we're not talking about trees like you see from the, you know, above the waterline, you know, they're going to be subsurface, you know, where all this deadfall and stuff has kind of collected in this, this eddy where it's kind of rotating back and forth.
2: Um, on that standpoint, I'm just going to drift. A lot of times, unless, uh, the only reason I would ever stop myself with that kind of trolling motor is that I know there's fish hanging there. And then what I'll do is I'll pull as far as I can off and if i do have a rope and anchor i'm just going to drop it a little bit above it and just quietly gently get back drift back and then i'm just going to sit there and throw on it pound the spot but a lot of times if in your situation i'm just going to drift and i'm going to cover water that way i said um unless you just like i said you know there's a bunch of fish in there i would just strictly drift and i just keep myself straight parallel with them banks and just inline everything i said unless uh for instance, if you got low current, you can get upriver. Just keep on going up in banks and casting, uh, kind of at a at an angle, just straight back towards you and covering water that way. And I said you'll catch them. I said there's no, uh, just because you got spot lock or something like that, ain't going to benefit you on that situation. But I said uh, the only only benefit of that rope and anchor is I think that your motor, you know, them fish ain't hearing that trolling motor noise the whole time. And I think that sometimes can be beneficial, being a little more stealthy approach, rather than hearing that, you know, the loud trolling motor when it speeds up, trying to catch back up to that spot, depending on which one you got, or they're hearing the continuous turn of the uh, trolling motor.
0: And yeah, no, that's a really good point. Like you said, it definitely seems like if you can find the fish and if you ha- you were going to do the anchor system, like that's by far the quietest. This is like, you know, you're, you're definitely setting yourself up like, hey, I'm going to be here for a little bit, you know, really pounding me the spot out. Now, um, also flip side. So we kind of talk about the whole, you know, spotlight technology and how that's kind of benefits you, but also like how you can kind of work around that per se. Um, but how beneficial it was when you got SpotLock. And again, like you said, not everybody's you know financially capable of doing that. Because I mean, like you said, eighteen hundred bucks. I don't know. I don't know if you can still get like a. I'm trying to think of old Ultrex, Like for everything's gone up pretty considerably. I was gonna say it's yeah. about two over two grand for most of that. And I think that Garmin system, dude. You're looking. You know, you're looking up there that the Laurent has got. You know, it's got a uh, a lot of components to it, and it's pretty expensive as well. So. Um, definitely I can see that kind of scaring some people away, but it kind of comes down to, you know, what someone's willing to spend and the disposable income they really had to put on their boat and yeah. how serious they are about it. But on the flip side, another technology, again, that's been extremely beneficial for you is forward-facing sonar, specifically talking kind of like the Garmin LiveScope. Um, what, talk to me, you kind of mentioned this early on, but kind of to go back over it. The fishing style y'all were doing with side imaging, because we don't necessarily talk about this 2D imaging. Most people now, you can get a side imaging unit for literally like 450 bucks, like a small 7-inch screen unit with yeah. a transducer now. Um, but from side imaging to the live scope, how did that change for you, and how long did it take you to get live scope? Because, again, that's been out for a little while as well. H- how long did it take you to kind of get over to use it versus just continuing to use the, the, the uh, side imaging uh, optics?
2: Yeah, so on the side imaging deal, um, so it, it it was awesome. The only problem, I, so I'd go down the river and I'd find I'd be slowly drifting and say I had live baits with clients, planter boards, balloons, and I would start seeing all these arches and I'm like, dude, here they are, mega school, they'd be 20, 30 fish, strippers. And I know that typically on my 2D or even my side, I'd look on my side imaging and I'd say, okay, they're to the left side of the boat and they're 35 foot. And so that was how I was kind of integrating that side imaging, and uh, especially depending on what speed I was at, too, because I don't know if people know, but your side imaging has speeds to set, so you can go, I think it's like 1 to 10, so you can set your your speed of your um, side imaging toward that. And a lot of times when you're going really slow through everything, everything kind of expands out. But I would always set mine at four mile an hour, and I'd just idle and look for fish. And when I started seeing them them shadows cast out, and I could kind of tell what was strippers and whatnot, because you would see multiple fish, like as a, a school of fish. And I would just kind of go back. I'd hit my, uh, I'd mark my spot, like on, say, hummingbird. I, I would go, I'd take my analog over and mark the spot, come back around, and I could just sort of fish there. Now, the only problem was, was after I did say I catch a few fish, I never knew where that school would go. So, this is when, after like three years of straight side imaging, I got really good at that. The forward-facing sonar came out, and I think I was watching a Scott Martin video on YouTube, and I was like, he was saying like panoptics and all this stuff, and I was like, what the hell is panoptics? And um, as I watched that, I was like, dude, I don't even know what he's looking at. But he was catching fish every time. So then my curiosity level went up. I went to Google to type in uh, panoptics and seen that they had that. And um, then push it forward when they came out with a live scope. I was still using the side imaging in and in the 2D down imaging and all that. And I was still catching fish. But I was always curious of where are these fish moving to? Because it's showing there's fish, but I'm not catching them. And I was like, either they're not biting or something's going on. So... One day I just said, "Hey, I'm buying a bullet. Bought a uh, 1022 GPS, um, which I thought was the best price for me with the LSV32. And um, this is before the 34 and all these other transducers came out. It was like the first big purchase in my life. And um, first, and I, and backstory real quick. Sorry, um, I had seen this on my uncle's bass boat. He had a brand new Skeeter FX, and he's he got plenty of money. So I watched on his boat him catch." small mouth, the deep one day. And I said, man, I said, and we were seeing these baits run through really quick. And I was like, and I throw a swim bait at it. and it was, I noticed it was skipjack. And I was like, Oh man, I said, this is the, this is what I gotta have. I said, this is the best thing since apple butter. And, um, but <laughs> fast forward, I buy that and, um, hook it up on my trolling motor. Um, in the, and I go out the first day and I said, I have two off days to figure this out. So I go out, I watched a couple of videos. I kind of know what everybody's settings are. I go out there and I, know, I go to a place where I know there's fish. Uh, and I went and I just kind of pan out there and I look and I'm like, okay, these look a lot bigger than bass. Um, so I can kind of categorize them and okay, these look bigger than bass and it all has to do with depths and distance out and everything else. But I think I had mine set on my like 80 foot, but then I went to a skipjackery to catch some bait and I'd seen these just dashes everywhere and they just fly through all of a sudden. Well, I just cashed at them and I'd watch on that live scope. I'd pan my trolling motor right toward that spot and I'd just jerk it in front of them and you'd start seeing stuff shoot at your bait. And I was like, okay, done deal. And I said, so that was like the best ever. Cause I said, the bait's been the easiest thing I've ever done now. Um, The only hard part is locating them now, like locating where the school's actually at. And I said, then I can just pan out now, find what I'm looking for, and then start catching.
0: Very cool. No, very cool. So with those, in those two days of kind of using, you know, panoptics or LiveScope, you know, were you able to figure it out decently well in order to be able to put clients and and use it with clients or how long did it kind of take you to kind of work out the kinks and what kinks did you maybe have early on in in order to like start getting consistent with it?
2: Yeah. So I I tell people, I use my clients as guinea pigs all the time. Uh, And (laughs) that's not, and that's not saying that I'm taking them to spots to see if there's fish, but I kind of was telling that guy, we, we went out and caught bait and I was showing him about it. He's like, Oh my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I was like, yeah, I said, I'm getting used to it still. He said, like, how many days you had it or how many years you had? It? I was like, uh, two days. He's like, and you're already this good at it. I said, well, I've had kind of practice at my uncle's bass fishing boat. And, um, but I said, man, I'm telling you, I said, we're going to get striper doing this today. And I said, I hadn't even tried at striper fishing, but, um, we went out and we had some fish in 25 foot of water and there's a sunken old Island, uh, And it's just hard bottom, rock, and stumps. And I knew they was, I pulled up there 2D sonar, seen arches, and I said, they're here. So we take some balloons out and uh, put three jacks out. And so what I said is, I'm going to watch that skip jack. Because I said, I can follow him wherever he goes with this, as long as he's in within 80 foot of me. And I said, I want to see what the fish look like, uh, exactly what they look like when they come up on a bait. And I pan it right over and I told that guy, I said, if you put your bait 10 foot in front of us at this position, I said, I promise you, you'll catch a fish. It's every morning like this. So I pan my live scope over and his bait goes over for some odd reason. It went over and they never do it right away. And all of a sudden his bait's just going through and there's nothing surrounding it. Just see a skipjack and we're in 25 foot of water. Remember that. His bait's at 15 and all of a sudden you just see this huge blob come off the bottom. And I see it kind of like turn its tail real quick. Like it just flashed. And went straight down. I said, he got it. And I looked up and the balloon's gone. And I was like, dude, this is it. This is how I'm going to catch them. Um, and I did I could just continue to do that. And then the the best part about this is I have learned that fish don't necessarily need live bait. Um, down here on Tennessee River, they'll hit a dead bait. It, but the temperature has to be perfect. But the reason I was doing it one day, the guy had a bait get killed. And it was just sitting there. I watched the bait and it no flinching, no nothing. And I noticed every time I'd kind of troll away, the the fish would start darting up at it. I was like, oh, man, it's 10-pound. It's probably 10-pound catfish trying to chew it up. Well, all of a sudden, the balloon sunk down. I was like, okay, reel down, give it five seconds, and whack its head off. And it was striper. And I was like, okay. Well, then I started noticing, like, sometimes when you'd find them schools, like, you'd get 10, 15 fish fighting over it. And I said, well, just yank it away from them. And then just push the button and let it fall back like a big spoon, you know, and a big flutter spoons. And then that's when the, the light switch went off. I was like, man, I said, I'm learning stuff about stripers that I'm, I'm, I've never knew. I knew they would eat deck cut bait, obviously, but I never knew they would eat a whole, but it had to be fresh. That's the thing I've picked up on over the six years of using the live scope. So, um, but dude, it's, it's unreal. It's, it's benefited me to the best, uh, that I can be so far right now. And I said, I'm sure there'll be some type, type of technology, uh, come out. That's even better than that. But I said, as of right now, this is my, this is my go-to.
0: Dude, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, so much to unpack. I mean, you you getting me more and more excited. Like like I was telling you, I got a I got a um, listen to the show that's going to let us use um, <coughs> uh, his, one of his live uh, live scope um, panoptic units on our boat just to mess around with. Because I told my interest to try to buy one. Um, I've got I've got the head unit. You know, I just got to get the transducer. The transducer is like fifteen hundred bucks. You get them on sale a little bit less than that. But um, yeah, it is. It is fascinating, kind of hearing you like, like those first couple of trips and how you started seeing all this stuff put together. Um, there's, there's so much to ask. Uh, number one, I, I've got to ask you with the the live bait, the, the live uh, you know skipjack specifically, and kind of seeing how they would approach it. It always seemed, does it always seem seem like for the most part they're coming up from almost below the bait to hit that bait, and. and Clear, yep. like clearly like the bait's always above the top of them and they're just come up and smoking and then trying to go right back down with it.
2: Yep. So what I've noticed, um, first time, you know, as I progressed, you know, I always tell, I always, I think I told you last time on the podcast was, um, I always set my bait higher than the bottom. I never want my bait to go directly on the bottom because skipjack are kind of finicky. And the one thing I, about uh, live scope that, um, it's kind of hard to tell. So you never see, Like, I never, a lot lot of times you'll just see these fish come off of nothing. Like, I'm seeing structure, and all of a sudden they just come out of nowhere, the woodworks. And I'm like, where the heck they come from? But I think it's because they're coming behind or at a weird angle where that that panoptics is not showing or live scope's not showing. And they're just darting off. But these fish come out, like, you'll see them hovering right below this, like, say I'm in 25 foot. You'll always see them just come up at the bait. Them fish always hit up. Oh, I've never seen one shoot down really for a bait if that makes sense to get them i think they're always looking up you know they're staying down on the bottom and kind of cruising around like you'll see some suspended stripers a lot of times but i said them are the ones i tell everybody they're kind of tricky like it's like bass fishing when you find them suspended bass like on jerk baits they're kind of tricky to hard to catch you got to sort of spy bait them or something like that but for stripers if you start seeing them suspended fish 90 i'm gonna say 90 percent I never see them go down for a bait. Now, some people probably have different uh, opinions on that, but I'm not giving an opinion. I'm giving you what I see every day and watching this live scope because this live scope has blew my mind, and it's what it does is just letting me see how the fish are reacting. Them days, I'm seeing like uh, yesterday, for instance, had a striper client out. Um, we well, was down on this trophy section, and I'm in 30 foot of water, and I told him, I said. I said, just watch this graph for a second. I said, well, I'm watching your bait. And I could tell when his bait was getting frisky and I'd always pan out and watch it just due to the fact to see if that's just the fish is frisky. Cause for some reason, that area, they like to dig real hard and act stupid. And then, um, i would pan over and there's nothing. I'm like, okay, nothing. And then I was noticing though, there was carp real high in the column right now. The water's uh, super cold in the mornings and it's warming up as a day. So I think they're kind of like sunbathing. I said, look at these blobs right here. So these are 10 pound fish. All of a sudden, you'd see this giant blob scream through on the bottom. I said, there's your strippers. And he said, how do you know that? I said, because watch." I said, pull your bait in, and we'll catch this fish coming through. I said, I'm going to put that bait right in front of him as he's swimming through. And I tell him, fifty-five or let's say 65 feet. He's 65 feet out. Just bring him in because he's at 95, 30 more feet. Brings it in. He push that button in. That skipjack swims straight toward the bottom. And all of a sudden, that blob shoots straight up. I said, there's nothing else in that river system chasing that skipjack. I promise you. And it's definitely at that size. So that's kind of, uh, that's what I've kind of learned about these strippers is they always tend to come up at a bait. And I said, not, and sometimes you'll watch them come up and they'll be in, in a foot of water right under your bait. And you're watching your bait trickle on top, getting chased around. And then all of a sudden, dude, when you see that tail start getting really fast on that, uh, stripper, you'll start seeing his, his tail, like super, like fan, super big. And he's starting to get aggressive. And when you start seeing them turning on the bait and going back down and then turning really hard up, they're going to eat every time. There's not one time they won't. Now, the only th- the thing they will do is sometimes they will come up and kill a bait as I'm watching that live scope. And then they shoot off and they're done. They're like one attempt and they're done. But that's, that's the benefit I'm seeing from it.
0: Very cool. So uh, I want to talk, um, before we even get more in like the fishing aspect of how you use it even fishing. I want to talk about how do you use live scope in order to find bait. And I want to talk about how you go about collecting your bait, whether it's, you know, different types of shad where you maybe using a casting net or like with the skip jacks, again, being so much bigger, how you're actually going about locating, and catching those in rod and reel. So, um, cause this, again, this is something I want to figure out how to do more so and more efficiently, especially when we go back up to the Tennessee river.
2: Yep. So the, the best thing about the live scope is just like for me is like it's easy for me to access bait now. Um, you know, I could kind of depict on what's gizzard shad, what's thread fins, and what's skipjack. And what I'm doing with skipjack, for instance, is I'll go down a. Normally they're on flats, so I kind of go out, sit out right off into the, the main channel, and I'll be looking into a flat, and all of a sudden you'll see these. Um, they're sort of just like they're. I don't know. It's kind of hard to describe if you ain't looking at it, but but I'm seeing these bigger blobs in packs of three and four and they're moving really quick because skipjack don't just sit. I've never seen them just kind of sit there Wintertime, You'll see them be really sluggish, but you'll never see them just sit. They're all the time moving and you'll throw over there. And uh, depending on what I'm using, say I'm using two quarter ounce jigs and a Foley spoon. I'll let it sink down right to their depth. They're sitting at and I'll just start popping it. Like we like, like wearing like a jerk bait, but I'm not stopping it like a jerk bait. I'm not just letting it sit unless I'm trying to let that bait sink. And uh, you'll start seeing them flash on your live scope. And a lot of times I'm fishing shallow enough water and clear enough water that I can look up and you'll see the baits flashing. And I said, um, but I said, I've I've caught so many baits uh, for skipjack off that live scope due to the fact that I know what depth they're at. Because not every day is they're at six foot or 10 foot. Some days, and I've seen in the winter time they're at, you know, 30 foot. I'll literally throw two crappie jigs, quarter-ounce jig down there, just let it sit all the way down to the bottom. And when I see them come through, just pop it a couple of times, man, and then they annihilate it. And um, for the gizzard shad aspect on cast nets, it's a big game changer. Because now that them gizzard shad, a lot of times when we're catching gizzard shad down here is that you're fishing shallow backwaters due to the fact that the current pushes these gizzards in the backwaters. But now in the mornings when they're not running current, I'm eligible to find these gizzard shads in 10, 15, 20 foot of water. And um, depending on what I'm doing, I'm throwing a tape net that's for your deeper water or I'm throwing like a real heavy net uh, in the shallows. But I can see where they're positioned at. And I, I can tell a big difference on the gizzard shad because they will be like clumps and clusters of 15, 20 smaller dots than, than the skipjack that I'm used to seeing. And then I can just kind of cast, i just fan my trolling motor out, find where they're at get 20 foot within them and then throw that like cash net it, because it's 20 foot in uh, circumference. And uh, it just, you watch it pancake down there, dude, and just slowly drift down to them. And you know if you got them or not, it's no guessing game. And I said, well, that's kind of nice too, because say you do miss them, I can pan right out real quick if I'm strong enough and fast enough to pull that net up real quick, pan out, see that they've shifted, you know, 15 foot to my right and kind of lead them because I can see where they're moving. Um, and then as thread fins, uh, you can catch cash net, same thing. I said, they're just like, there'll be a bazillion little, little fine dots that I'm seeing out. I mean, same thing with a tape net or a regular cash net that I'm catching them that way.
1: to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast.
0: True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the precision hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far?
1: Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, thirty and fifty, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from thirty to fifty. And the fifty yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is. Unbelievable! Like everybody's jaws were dropping. Like when we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at fifty now than it was throwing at forty before my old
0: choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option. Same chokes I have in my shotgun. So, guys, if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring, you could head over to TrueLockChokes.com. That's T R U. L-O-C-K chokes you can also use the promo code southern at checkout at trulockchokes and save 10% on your order again give trulock a shot this spring especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with trulock it's super interesting now uh, dude I've got a lot of questions about bait because again last episode we talked a lot about we talked a little bit about live bait but a lot of it was about those big glide baits artificial these big swim baits and everything that you're using catching these, these striper but you know, live bait. you know, just offers you something else as well uh, that, you know, this is another tool in a toolbox for you to be able to use and a different presentation as well. Um, for specifically skipjack, you're talking about finding those like in flats, like off the main river channel um, in, in some <clears throat> of these reservoirs and everything. Um, do you ever see them in fairly large groups or is it always just a, a handful of them? You know, five, six, three, four, five, six of them kind of in a, in a little group kind of, you know, darting around.
2: Um, I've seen, I've seen literally a thousand of them in a ball. So down up in one of my reservoirs, it's super cold. And so if it gets, if we get really hot summer and no generation, they shoot up in these real shallow, uh, not shallow, but 15 foot to the deepest point of that river. And it's super clear. And, um, they will actually bunch up because it pushes them up there because they're like, they're kind of temp. I'm I kind of fish temperatures. And like, I can tell you when say downriver river is 80 degrees then I need to go find 65 degrees to 70 degrees when I find that happy medium. And a lot of times it's up in that shallower, colder water coming from the, um, t- tail race, of, like say mountain Hill Lake or something like that. Then I can just go up there, but you'll see them cluster. And I've seen 500 to a thousand of them and no lie, you throw out there and the whole school darts toward it. And it's, it's freaking crazy, craziest thing I've ever seen. And depending on what the time of year is what I'm throwing at them. But, um, it's just, it just depends what what the t- water temperatures are everywhere because if you get um, the same temperature in a 10-mile stretch of river, you tend to start seeing less big schools and kind of scattered sporadic 5-10. And you might see a 20-ball 20, uh, 20 of schools of uh, skipjack. But if you get that, like, big differences in river, like super hot down river, then that's when I start noticing these giant clusters and especially in like some of these lakes that got more skipjack um, then I'm starting to see them larger size schools like the biggest one i ever seen I know there was at least probably three or four thousand in there because the school stayed there for like four hours and it would go through and it would take like five minutes on live cup to leave and I was like I've never seen so many so Depending on what, when it, where it is, and where it's at, and what time of year, and everything, I said you can see big schools of them. I said what you just need to do is take you. You can even throw a crappie jig at them if you. But I said you need to get down there to them if they're deep. And and I'm telling you, all you got to do is twitch it one time at them, but you got to keep it moving. And if they jump for it, and you catch one, then you know they're skipjack. Because I found out with the live scope, if you throw out a skipjack, he will hit, he will at least attempt to hit it every time. I've never seen when you throw at it and they just keep on going. They, they will turn on a bait. I think they're just always looking for food, even though there's like giant, but they, they kind of position themselves like when they're not really feeding, they're sort of sitting out in the mouths of the creek when they're feeding or even say river channels. When they're feeding heavy, they're on the flats. When they're not, they're kind of just sitting right off the brake line, just hovering around there, it's just swimming in circles. But when, like you, the question you asked, though, I do see big schools, like giant schools, depending on where I'm at.
0: Now, how, how did you go about finding a uh, skipjack before uh, LiveScope specifically? Like, h- how are you going about catching your bait before all that? Like, how did side imaging come into consideration? And also for like gizzard Chat as well.
2: So funny thing is I never used my graph skipjack fishing. Um, the ping, what we've noticed is off when with that ping that that 2D sonar is throwing off, it makes them move continuously and they never sit still. Um, they don't normally sit still at all, but they kind of stay in the same area and they won't leave. So I always turn my graph off the sonar part off. I never run it because you'll catch one and that school's gone forever. And it's like, they seem to run like 500 foot. So the thing with the live scope is I don't never hear nothing from it. I've taken another water and I just put my ear up to it and I can't hear nothing. So I'm thinking that maybe that different frequency is not bothering them as bad. And two, um, you know, that 2d man, it's you can hear that pain through the boat a lot of times and I think it spooks them off. But what I'm looking for before I had all that is temperature down here. I don't, I kind of, in my river system that I fish for mainly, I can tell you within a hundred yard stretch of where they'll be typically with uh, without live scope or nothing, just water temperature base. It seems like down here, as you get in from like May, June, July, August, September, when it's super hot, uh, you got to find that cool, Water is where they like to get not cold, but cool. Saying cool is uh 65 to 72. Um, once, sometimes like later in the year, because just the river system's so hot and they're not discharging, you'll find them uh, around a lot of thread fin, which hang out in that like 70 to 80 degree range, but they're going to be early in the morning and you better throw like little flies. Like you'll, I get there at daylight and you'll kind of see just popping. You'll just see like rings in the water and that's them. And what they're doing are just chasing them small schools of, uh, cause we have different hatches year round down here. We have like these super micro um, thread fin hatches. And then you get these big, um, these bigger thread fin as they get, you know, uh, earlier in the year. And I so said, you kind of just follow them schools, but um, come, come to find out the temperature is the main thing that I've noticed that they hang in. They got to be in that perfect temperature to find them. That's how I always did. Um, I just, after trial and error, going out, seeing where I wasn't catching fish, and then I'd hit a certain temperature, I'm like, okay, 65 degrees. And then I'd go down a little bit to 75 degrees, and they went not there, and I'd come back to 68 or 65 degrees, and they seemed to be there. I don't know what it is about that temperature, but that's what, what I always fish for them, like wherever I'm at.
0: I wonder if that has something to do, because with uh, where I've seen guys catch them, talk about catching them, is you know, just below some of the and dams, on so, like especially mm-hmm. the Tennessee River. And I wonder if it's because there's pulling that cool water, uh, from above river, yeah. and that's one reason why wow, they're stacked there's not necessarily like yeah, it's a great feeding spot. You know, everything's getting shot through there, and they can they can move super quickly through fast flowing water. But uh, probably just that cooler waters right there versus even just you know down river even a mile or two. Um, yeah. So because that, that's that's where I've kind of thought about you know specifically catching them on, on Gunnersville is kind of going below the, the locking dam, and I've seen a lot of guys catch them down there. And like you're saying, like throwing you know heavier crappie jigs um you know eight ounce jig or, or even a li- little bit heavier depending on like where they're at in the water column and just like you said kind of like i've seen guys talk about like burning it kind like somewhat depending on like how i guess guess aggressive they are feeding uh and, and again where yeah. they're at in the water column but it seems like you said like if you find them you get on them you know you're you're gonna catch a bunch of them it, as long as you can stay on that school and it's like i was telling you earlier The only time I've ever caught them was, again, by catch crappie fishing uh, at night under under lights with jigs and minnows. And it's like, dude, when you hit one of those suckers, you know, you hook into one of those suckers, you know exactly what it is because uh, there's no crappie in the world that's going to swim from underneath you 15 feet to the left, 15 feet to the right, 15 feet to the left when you're only in 18 feet of water. Um, yeah. you know, them suckers are it is ridiculous, but uh also one thing that's interesting about skipjack for people that don't know, it seems like they have a very very high fat and oil content. Um like they're almost like if you cut into one it's like it's almost greasy is the way I, I like describe it. And um I, I'm wondering if that's one of the reason and I guess all shatter like this because I've I've seen get or threadfin shad seems to be similar. That's one of the reason why they spoil so quickly if they die. Um and one of the reasons why, you know, if you're going to use cut bait or anything like that, or even dead bait, how it needs to be extremely fresh that so doesn't spoil.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the skipjack, like, I don't know. Most people don't keep them alive just due to the fact that they're so tough. Like, they need a lot of room to swim and a lot of oxygen um them suckers just nonstop moving and if you ever like take one and try to touch its tail to its head they can't really bend that much so and i think that's due to the it's sort of like a striper i think the lactic acid builds up in them and i think that's a lot of times what kills them um you know because they call them tennessee tarpon them suckers are always swimming and they just need to be moving but um you just need a high concentration of uh dissolved oxygen in a tank in enough room that's why a lot of the guys down here that if they do use them they're running 100 plus gallon tanks um i'm a little different i've noticed that they they stay really good and i got a 50 gallon live well built into my cr and what i do is i just pump for i got a uh 750 gallon per hour pump and i just pump that fresh water in and how my i've kind of angled my uh hose in a circle and it kind of keeps them they'll kind of just nose up in the current and just sit there a little bit and they're not working super hard because it's not, it's not fast enough. Mm-hmm. But so they got plenty of room to swim. It ain't necessarily that you need to vol- the, the up and down volume of water. It's just, you need the, just the space that they can turn in instead of going in the corner and just sitting there and they kind of kill herself. But um, skipjack are super oily and greasy. Like you're talking about like catfishing, um i see guys that they'll go and put them on the bank after they catch them and they just keep them out there and cook them in the sun and i said they when you cut them out they just dry out so quick and i think that's due to that how much wool they do have um so like a lot of times i'm just throwing them in a cooler and i always put their bellies up and just pack them full of ice and kind of layer them that way that their bellies stay fresh because that's the first part it sp- spools on them is their gut sack so
0: now, because I want to talk a bit about this, we talked about kind of how you're going about catching some bait. Uh, I've got I got to get back and throw in cast nets again. Um, is, is there any way to uh, find gizzard shad? Like I was telling you, I've seen some giant gizzard shad on on, um, on Gunnersville, but is there any way to find them without live scope? Kind of going back to tech, technology, kind of question.
2: Yeah, you can find them on uh, with two day inside imaging. Um, the it, you sort of got a new... So summertime, them gizzard sheds kind of uh, are in that transition period of like they're up in the shallows and they're down in the, uh, they're kind of down in the ledges, like for bass guys, especially on Gunnersville Tennessee River. That's why them bass are kind of out there. They kind of get off their spawning deal, move, move out toward the deep water. And so I just use my 2D sonar or side imaging, kind of scan out and you'll see these big clumps of balls of bait. And I said, it's kind of hard to depict necessarily unless you do kind of trial and error cast on them but early mornings if you'll go out in these shallow bays and kind of just watch and you start seeing them flip when you see the flip that's pretty much your gizzard chat you school and i want to tell everybody is turn all your 2d sonar off and all that noise gradually ease up on them and just throw on that flip now if you're you know 100 yards away from it wait until you see a flip that you can kind of get close to in shallow water and cast on them. But um, if you're looking for them deep ones, you're going to have to get out in the channel and kind of graph around. But I said, typically them gizzards will always show themselves. Not all the times, but typically they'll show themselves on top.
0: Now, when you're saying uh, flip on top, uh, give us a visual of what that looks like.
2: So say it's super early in the morning, you're going to see like a actual, it'll be like, you'll start seeing rings, but you'll see these, you'll hear the flip. Like it's like a, it's like you're snapping your finger. And I said, um, they could be thousands of them like down here, uh, in middle Tennessee. I don't fish there much, but when I do go down there, there's a, there's a, a, a marina down there and in the morning, dude, they go bonkers. And it's, it, you can hear, it sounds like a thousand people out there flipping their fingers. And, um, and then I'm watching out there and you'll just see millions of them just flipping everywhere and trickling. Um, the thread fins kind of just like, kind of thread fins really don't flip much. They will, but then bigger gizzard, Chad, your Ford, uh. 10 inches and then some places you get them bigger mm-hmm. but i said you're gonna hear like big flips you'll see big rings and i said they'll be popping everywhere on them flats and in them shallows
0: very cool okay cool now also with with live because i want to talk to you about your gear setup of how you fish your live bait because we never really touched on that uh, uh, on the first episode with you because we were just talking so much about the uh the glide bait specifically but when it comes to keeping fresh live bait um especially with a guy that doesn't have, like, a huge boat, what is, like, some of your advice? If, say, if someone was, whether, you know, depending, like, you know, some, you know, the bat, like, a, on a bass boat, you know, some of those live wells are anywhere between, like 18 gallons to 25 gallons, uh, and you're running yeah. a 50-gallon in your boat. You know, for specifically uh, skipjack, I'm guessing that's going to be too small in that kind of case uh, for them. Yeah. But how does that, cons- like, <clears throat> if a guy was going to build, say, like, in our boats, so I've just got a big aluminum, all well-built uh 15 foot aluminum boat uh that's 72 inch uh, beam width so it's a pretty wide boat if yeah. you were, if you were going to like build or, or like construct a live well in order to handle some of these baits you know what what are some of your what are some of your thoughts on that as in uh, you know what would you need in order to keep those bait alive and again what do you need for you've kind of mentioned what you need for uh uh, skipjack This again they need the flow they need the room width wise it's not really the height uh, the depth of the water it's the width of the water and keeping fresh water coming but for gizzard shad are they any different in spe- and same thing with uh thread fins as in like what they need in order to be able to stay alive in a, in a live well
2: yeah so that's kind of the downside of gizzard shad um If anybody knows anything much about the gizzard shad, once their nose get red, they're not real good baits. They're stressed out and they're kind of their shad scales are falling off. So a long time ago before I had a bait tank, a nice bait tank, um, because I have an exterior bait tank. It's a male 50 gallon that I bring has filtration and everything. You kind of need filtration system with gizzard shad. Um, What you can do, though, you can go to Tractor Supply, buy you a water trough for uh, for cattle. Uh, I think they make a 40 gallon which is like about the, or they might make one smaller than that, but I think 40 gallons perfect. Um, and all you have to do is you'll drill a hole in the side and you know, them old Coleman, like uh, water coolers, like the little things you can like pop open and drink out of, mm-hmm. you can actually make you a filtration system out of it. And what you put in there is a village pump at the bottom and you have two ports in there. One's the water off top coming in to fill that tank and the other ones the water pushing out of it and then what you can do is build you a like a custom uh, screen or something like that and then put you some pillow stuffing in there that your water actually comes up and filters and it's like a big water cycle and because them gizzards get really nasty and then the reason they get really stressed out is because the water's super dirty because as soon as you put them in there they'll start crapping so like typically what i'll do is what I'm catching bait, gizzard shad specifically, is I will get me a five-gallon bucket or I'll just throw them in my inter- internal live well and just put water in there. I don't run current on them or nothing. And I'll just let them kind of crap because I'll kind of start crapping everywhere and the water get real nasty. And what it's called is cleaning them out. And then I'll throw them in my bait tank, my... Uh, external bait tank with a filtration in there. That way they've already crapped out majority of their nasty stuff. And then the key to keeping gizzard shad too is salt, water softener. Um, I know that's kind of crazy, but it keeps their shad scales hard on them and it keeps them kind of calmed down. uh, And it makes them really frisky too. But the salt is a big key in it. And a lot of people, while they're killing them, is because they don't have salt in there. And plus is the water's getting so dirty. And they don't, ha- and you need a rounded tank a lot of times too. So they can't run in and bump their nose to start getting them red. But, um, you can make the guy without it can make a simple bait tank. Like I'm kind of describing, yep. um, you just need good fresh water on it. Um, do you don't need to do too crazy of water changes on it. You just need to, whatever water you catch them out of is what needs to be in there. You just need to filter, uh, fil- find a system to filter it and don't push too much water on them. And if, Summertime, you can use like a diffuser on an oxygen tank. You can go to like Colston Gas or somewhere like that, buy your oxygen tank and diffuser, and go get you one of them uh, oxygen stones put in there, and just really barely creep it open, and that way they'll be really good healthy baits. I said, but if you get baits, um, say you freshly catch them too, it depends on what net you get. Sometimes it tears out, tears them up in the process of getting them out of the net. But um, depending on what mesh size and all that is, and what size bait is if you're wanting to just fish them quick, you can throw them in lava. They'll last about 20 minutes. Good. And they'll be great. Just keep water on them and then throw a little salt in there just to see how, how good that lasts. And then you can go there and fish them, you know, fresh rather than holding them for a long period of time. Like sometimes I'm holding them for like a week, depending on where I'm at.
0: Interesting. Very cool. You know, you got any interest in that kind of DIY live uh, live bait uh, tank, Um for, like, this whole purpose, something that you can kind of take in and out of the boat when you need to and have it secured. Do you, you got any thoughts on uh, how to make a good lid system or something to seal it up so you don't you have water sloshing everywhere? Yeah,
2: um, so with that that uh, rounded uh, water trough, all I do is I go and I put, like, a piece of uh, 2 by 4 in the middle of it, and I'll screw it in on each side of it, and then I kind of just make me uh, – I'll get me a p- big piece of plywood and kind of just cut it out in that same, same, uh, circumference or whatever. And then I kind of just put hinges on it and it closes. And then you can put some of them, get you a set of, um, the floats, what's in pool noodles, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: make a slit in it. And you put it on the edge of it, of the tank, and then you push it down. And then you can, what I do is one side, I never open, So I just bolt it down there tight where nothing, no water really comes out because it don't really splash much. And then the other side, I have a uh, handle on it where I can, in a latch, I make me a like a little latch right where when I close it, it stays closed. And that, for the most part, and like unless you take off and you got so much weight in the back in the, in your boat, and you just n- nose plow like really high when you're taking off, like when your trim set too high, that's really the only way you'll get water out of it. But I mean, it for the for what it is, and the cost, like compared to spending two thousand dollars on a bait tank, uh, a, you know, you can go build one for, I don't know. Uh, hundred bucks
0: yeah that's fifty bucks that's what i was thinking probably sub 200 bucks to do everything you're talking yeah. about and uh and I, I was thinking about you know for filtration you go to like a pet store and buy a bunch of those uh like uh fish tank filters and you could probably mm-hmm. stack them all in a line and all that th- those pads and like kind of put them in that uh that kind of filtrate, you know, kind of build your own filtration device where it just filters through all that and kind of goes back in um that is yeah, so, the, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say that that's super interesting. I might, I might, that might be a, an interesting little DIY project. I need to try to work on and, uh, yeah, for sure. And, and figure that out. Cause, and then also, you know, cause I don't have a on my boat. Then I can start doing some of these, uh, these, uh, afternoon, even night bass tournaments down here in one of the rivers, uh, a little, little three and a half hour tournament where, uh, Throw a few fish in there have everything rock and roll and come back and try to win some uh win some money <laughs> yeah you might you
2: have a good big jacuzzi for them man
0: <laughs> yeah you'd have to dip net them out, you'd have to dip net them out of there uh, yeah but uh, yeah. but no that, that that is that is super interesting though uh and also real quick on the, on the like the water softener like the salts and stuff what exactly do you use for that and how do you go about the ratio of gallons per water versus what you put in there
2: so I go to Walmart and you can buy, I can't remember the brand. It's in a yellow and blue bag. I uh, can't think of the brand of it, but it's like pool softener. You'll go in there and some of it is in fine grade. Some of it is in like big pellets. And what I found out, so I'm always doing 50 gallons to, or a hundred gallons. So what I'll do is uh, for 50 gallons, I think it's like um, a, one cup or no, two cups or a cup and a half, depending on what, what type of condition the bait's in. And then with a hundred gallon, dude, I'm pouring like a quarter of the bag in there. And I, they come in 50 gallon, 50, uh, 50 pound bags. So, I mean, you're doing, I, I'm not, I'm not precise on anything I do. I'm always just like, I, I eyeball it. It's like, I got in trouble one time for eyeballing it with a muzzleloader. Uh, I was like, Oh, that <laughs> looks like enough powder. And then I about blew the barrel off. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, the scar, the scar shows the stupidity I did when I did that. But, um, but basically i just you know you don't if you put too much you'll kill them on instant like you'll, you'll just kill them but like what i can compare it to if you don't have a, a cup to measure it with take you like a handful uh or a whole two handfuls dump in there once and then do it again and i said you should be plenty enough for 50 gallons now if you're talking 20 gallons or 40 gallons then you're gonna do obviously less than that but i said you kind of got to play with it and i said there's a also like you can find on forums striper forms online i'm sure of what people's success rate is with how much salt, uh, they're using, but pull softener. Um, and then two, a big key is you'll notice on, after you keep them shattering her a while, you'll notice a lot of dirty like foam on top of it. And what that is is the ammonia, uh, on top. And so you got to scoop that off. But if you're financially don't have a lot of money to buy this product called foam off, which literally makes all the bubbles and everything disappear, which is super cool you can go buy you non-dairy coffee creamer and it's the craziest thing ever. It sounds kind of weird, but you'll throw that stuff on there and it literally all the foam and everything comes off of it. And it'll come like, there'll just be a clump of that junk left the hard, the hard stuff and you just scoop it off and you're good. And then you got clean water again.
0: Interesting. Oh, that's a good tip. That's a really good tip. Um, awesome. Now i I want to ask you, uh, I mean, I've got another live scope question. Um, but before we do that, because I we'll probably ended on that, but for your rod and reel setups and, and the balloons, specifically with the balloons, if you're using balloons versus if you're using a uh, a planer board, how do you go? Like, what is your gear setup? Like, what, what size of hooks are you using? Are you using circle hooks? Are you using like an Albertine style hook? Like, what kind of hooks do you like to use? How do you like to weight the bait? Um, just the overall rigging you do uh, first. Then I want to kind of get into, you know, the planer boards versus a balloon setup.
2: So on my balloon setup, um, I'm using J style hooks, typically seven, eight, nine aughts. Um, that can be Gamagatsu, it can be a Mustad, bait beak hook, uh, owner makes a good hook. I said I use Gami's and uh, Mustads mainly, and I'm snailing that hook, even though because some of them some of them J hooks that you get, which I'm calling like you actually have to set the hook on. Um, some of them are inline some of them are offset <clears throat> depending on what you're doing i always snell my hook just due to the fact that clients not necessarily um set the hook perfect every time and that that snail hook kind of makes up for it and you can use it as a circle hook also depending on what application you use it in but i'm using a um typically my favorite one size is a a dot it's not too big but it's not too small and um for them skip jackets like anywhere from 15 to 18 inches it's perfect for them and if you get a bigger one than that you kind of got to use a stinger rig which is i got my j hook and then i'm got a tail tag in off of it which like a number two or number three uh stinger hook which is a treble in a two or three x and i'm sticking in the side of that bait and i'm hooking that bait behind the head or if i'm pulling planer boards uh if i'm balloon i'm always hooking it behind the head if i'm running planer boards i'm always sticking it through the nose hole up above And then I got that stinger hook off of it. That way it's kind of in line. So it ain't because if you hook it in the back with current, it kind of just spins and rolls and the bait does stupid stuff. And he never stays in line and he always stays up on top. But with that balloon rig, I'm, you know, I'm tipping that, uh, I always keep that hook in its back and I'm typically stretching that balloon 15, 20 feet, depending on where I'm fishing. And I'm running that, uh, I run 30 to 40 pound fluorocarbon on all my rigs with braid or mono as a main line.
0: Okay, I got a couple other questions. That number one, how long do you like that leader to be? That four zero leader to your to your braid typically. Oh, Bryce, I lose you. Hey Bryce, I think I lost you. So, with your braid and your fluorocarbon, and you know having a fluorocarbon leader, how long typically do you want that leader to be before it meets that braid?
2: So on the on the, I'm using 30 pound leader uh, fluorocarbon, but my length typically is six foot or better. And the reason I'm using that uh, length is due to the fact that I want a long leader just to make sure that them fish ain't seeing no swivel or nothing, and it's kind of out of the realm of the fish seeing that. Um, Depending on where I'm at, um, I could run shorter and get away with it, but typically six foot is my minimum length. Sometimes I'll run with braid, I'll tie a double uni knot, and I'll run a 20-foot leader because... I don't want nothing bothering, um, nothing bothering them fish. For instance, uh, line if they are line shy or anything like that.
0: Okay, got you. And again, that's the reason why you're using fluor over mono too. Is just so it kind of disappears on them.
2: Yeah, especially in a river system is it clear. Um, I'm always running a mono main line or a braid main line, but specifically like super ultra clear water, running fluorocarbon. But there's times that you can get away with just running mono. I have no, no, you don't even need a leader. Um, I have nothing against that. Uh, That way you got less knots involved too. So it's just a preference for me. And I said, some people don't need, you know, you don't have to have it to catch fish. But in my instance, where I'm fishing a lot of clear water and tail races and stuff like that, it's just, it benefits me a lot of times.
0: Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Now also, you mentioned something else that's kind of interesting. Um, So you're not necessarily using a, a uni knot uh, to connect both lines, but sometimes you're using a swivel. When are you using a swivel versus doing a uni knot?
2: This, the, the uni knot um, or the Alberta or the FG depending on what I'm doing, Like a lot of current and or I like to because M baits kind of are moving erratic a lot of times back and forth. I don't want that line to twist close to the knot so that, you know, that that barrel swivel kind of keeps it free at all times. You know, uh, if a fish is going in direction of left and right, it um, keeps it from knotting up as much. And the uni knot or the FG or whatever you want to tie, um, i like to use it during slack water because I'm not really, I can kind of keep up with my bait more than rather than the current. So it's just kind of preference on that too. Um, I feel like sometimes the FG or the uni kind of gives on hook sets. And I know it's kind of it's kind of odd, but I have a lot of breakoffs. I used to a lot of times when I tie uni and then I tried the Alberto and I, that was a good knot. And I said, when I tie that line to line, I always kind of seemed like I would break off. And I think it was due to the fact that I was setting a hook way too hard for one. But like that high impact on that knot, if any of the piece of the knot was wrong it would break so i know on a swivel if i tie my normal knots, they're always pretty they're always good i rarely break off on that
0: yeah love it now one thing that i've been very interested in asking you for a while when we did our first episode uh again this last you know the last episode uh, of the podcast was uh, the balloon setup and and how you like to use the balloons and again for listeners that didn't listen to last week's episode, I'd recommend going back and listen to it because you're going to want to hear the talk of how we're discussing using these big glide baits, these big swim baits to catch these uh, big stripers. But with the balloon setup, are, are, I'm, I'm guessing, especially if you say you're in 25 feet of water and you want that bait down 15 feet, you're not casting that. I mean, how, how are you going about tying, like measuring out, you know, the exact length that you want, tying your balloon on, and then getting that bait out there where you need it to go?
2: So I'm basically what I'll do is like, say I put my bait on, I thought in the water. So I got seven eleven rods, which are eight footers. And I will measure two of those typically, depending on what depth I'm doing. But the longer leader seems to be better for me, the leash. So I'll stretch it out two lengths of the rod. And then I'll tie that balloon directly up at where my guide is almost or pull more line out and just tie directly on that line. And the natural instinct of that skipjack is to swim down. So he kind of goes down there for me. I don't have to wait him. It's always free line. Um, if I weight a skipjack, it's going to be on a down line where I got like a Carolina rig and I'm just, I got three foot a liter and then my swivel, then my um, sinker. But the problem is with that, if you want to keep a skipjack down, like torture him, I call it, is you got to have a six to eight ounce sinker to keep him down. Three ounces don't do nothing for them fish. They will swim up to the surface in 25 foot of water with a three ounce sinker. Uh, six ounces is kind of pushing it. If there's a striper real close to them, I've seen them come up almost to like three foot under the surface with a six ounce sinker, which is the most impressive thing I've ever seen. But uh, eight ounces, it keeps them down there. They know, But they don't swim as free also. So on that instance, uh, depending on what you're doing, you got to kind of play with your, uh, and it has to do with current to your weights, But that skipjack always on that balloon rig. He'll almost swim down unless a fish pushes him up, and then he will stay on top because that's his getaway. He knows that them stripers don't like the sunlight a lot of times, and I think he stays up high because he has nowhere else to go. If he goes down, he's screwed. You know, he don't. He'll uh, he'll kind of be in that strike zone at all times. So he kind of gets up toward the surface and swims on top trying to get away. And a lot of times, them stripers don't get him that way. But them stripers are so mostly Two and them skipjackers kind of uh, they can move so quick back and forth that it's hard for them to get it, so it's like cat and mouse the whole time. But that's that's strictly what I do. Um, but I'll tie that balloon directly up over 15 foot if I'm in 20 25 foot, and he'll just go straight down there and I'll watch him on the live scope and just see what he does. Now, some of them is kind of stubborn at times, so what I do is I punch them like two or three times. I know it sounds cruel, but you kind of Knock them out, and they don't lo- They kind of lose uh, sight on what their <laughs> their job is, and uh, they kind of stay down that way. And I said, sometimes it's nice to have a flutter bait. I call flutterbait like he's half dead, half alive. He has enough get. He has enough get when a fish gets on him to get away, but he's not. He's not at full potential. So that's all I do.
0: So again, typically you're not running weights on them, so you're kind of letting them do their own thing, kind of go down. Now, do you do gizzard shad any different?
2: So a gizzard shad, it's depends on the where I'm at and what I'm doing. Gizzard shad'll dig the whole time. I've okay. never seen a gizzard shad on a balloon come up. The only way they would come up if I was holding them in current, they would come up. But if you just drift with them and or you know, if you're in no current, they kind of stay down unless same same style same everything um if a striper gets on them i've seen one come up like three foot but he didn't stay up they just dig and dig and dig i don't know if it's something with the in their mind that makes them do that but the the gizzard shadows stay down really well he don't come up to the top much
0: okay very cool awesome um interesting so there's this certain situations when you'll use that weight but dude six ounces god dude I, okay that's not what i was thinking you were going to say but then again I, I've, I've handled a few pretty big skip jacks and uh, i can kind of see how you're saying that they get enough fire in them they can they can lift up some serious weight trying to come back up to the surface getting away from those stripers um interesting very interesting now also kind of bring it full circle with the technology aspect when you're fishing and this is kind of uh, getting to a point of kind of you know wrapping up, but kind of using the, the live scope and you know spot lock all that technology along with you know some of the live bait and or when you're using the artificials like you do like in the summertime, is there anything else worth of noting of you know how you like to fish those areas with the live scope or is it very much like with live scope you're just trying to keep an eye on the bait and then kind of every now and then I guess scanned around and seeing you know if there's any stripers kind of circling the area.
2: Um, the only, the, the only thing about the live scope a little different than what I will do and what like really depicts on, uh, if I catch fish or not is sometimes like I'll be just drifting and see fish kind of come up at a bait, but I'll take these dead baits. I'll kill my skipjack or have dead skipjack and I'll pitch it, uh, way off. Um, I can kind of, I'm like, see my target. I pitch him skipjack. I stand up on a cooler. And I would get like a 16 to 18 foot leader because the spots I do it on are typically deeper. And and I said, I can lob that bait over there and I can let it flutter down. And I'm watching that. I'm staying in line with that bait. And I just let it go down. And when all of a sudden it gets down there like 16, 18 foot, then froppers start darting up at it. And it's the coolest thing ever. And I said, I'm using that just to work that bait. I'll actually use it like a flutter spoon and I'll pull, yank that bait away from him and fish. It. And all of a sudden you'll start noticing there'll be more fish. And that's a good little way to find fish in my river is to throw them dead baits. And that's a, because a lot of times you don't even see them stripers down there on the bottom. And all of a sudden you'll start seeing 15, 20 fish dart up. And then that's how I'm kind of using it to find Interesting. And I guess we didn't the mention.
0: I the- wouldn't Go ahead. No, I was gonna say uh, your audio cut out. Let me let me write that time down real quick. Uh, so I, my bad. I thought you were you weren't talking, but you were still talking. With audio cutout. Um,
2: Hold on one second. I'm gonna text text my fiance.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned kind of having success, you know, casting those those dead baits and almost kind of using like a flutter spoon uh, in order to kind of locate fish and even catch fish like that. When do you also implement the whole cut bait aspect? Because you, you kind of tease this a little bit on the first episode we did with you, but we never really talked about it in any kind of detail. You know, first off, what kind of success have you had with cut bait when it comes to catching big fish, and why do you think cut bait at certain times of the year seems to be productive?
2: Um, so cut bait is like the uh, – I'm trying to think how to word this. I think cut bait is honestly – probably your best presentation for big stripers um, kind of spill the beans on this. I don't talk about it a lot because it's kind of really important one I do, but cut bait is one of them deals. I like, so typically when temperatures get hotter and fish are staying on bottom more, it's a good way to kind of present your bait. And you don't, I, a lot of times in my river system is I'm throwing it out there with free line and just letting it naturally drift down to the bottom. Cause I'm not fishing super deep water, like 25 deep to me in my rivers and um you know springtime when you start getting a lot of skibjacks up in the rivers due to the fact they're spawning i think a lot of baits sometimes just die off naturally so i said they're used to seeing baits on the bottom and strippers are kind of opportunist and they'll eat anything like uh if some of a wounded bait or dead bait as long as it's fresh they'll pretty much key in on it but um that cut bait is what I've caught two of my biggest strippers in my boat, one with a client and one personal best of mine on. And um, I think at night especially, um, them fish are kind of just cruising looking because they're, they're they're sight feeders. So a lot of times they're live bait oriented, but at night I think they're just using their sense of smell more like, and they're just cruising the bottom. And, you know, an easy meal for a striper could be a piece of cut bait on the bottom. Um, gizzard shad, I've have caught them on it. Trout and skipjack are the main keys. Um, if you got, if you're in a trout water, use trout for cut bait. If you got skipjack and trout, you can kind of use both. But if you just got skipjack and shad in there, then skipjack's king. But I said, find you a flat, um, pull up on there and cut bait, uh, where them fish are kind of moving up to. And depending on what time of year is it, um, Summer's the main time you start seeing that cut bait bite and get really, really good. Um, typically June, July, August, September, and then it kind of starts dying down again as you get into October, November, December, but you can catch quality fish off cut bait. It's not a, there's one or two times down here when the water gets into the 70s that them fish are strictly on the bottom. They're not up no more and that they will feed off cut bait, and um, I've had, I've had I've had 50 fish days, 40 fish days off of it. And I've had to leave the fish biting due to the fact that I can't keep rods out and I'm running out of bait. Because I get like three or four chunks out of a skipjack. But the head's by far your best bait out of any of the uh, any of the bait fish you're using. So.
0: Now also, okay, I'm, v- I'm super interested in this. We're just going to have to run along this episode, guys. Um, with the cut bait, you're talking about presentations with that bait on the bottom. Like you're casting it out. Are are did you say? Are you freelining it, or do you have weight on there as well?
2: Um, a lot of times when I'm cut baiting, um, depending on where I'm at, if I got current, then you obviously have to weight it. Um, I try to tell everybody get a, get get a buy with the smallest amount of weight you can. Um, you, now you don't want that bait moving, also. But like if you're in six mile an hour current, I know you don't never see that really, but then you're going to have to obviously use probably at least. 10 or 12 ounces <laughs> and probably more than that in six mile an hour. But that's like a weight I've never seen that much, but say you're in a mile and a half at an hour or two mile an hour, then they you use six ounces on there. And if you have no current, then I think your best presentations is obviously no weight. Um, that due to the fact that stripers, a lot of times when they feel that weight, they kind of like, I, th- I think it kind of screws them up a little bit. Like they're like, okay, something's weird. When they pick it up, because a lot of times in our shallow water rivers, what I've noticed is uh, I fish a place that's like two and three foot, and you'll see these stripers crews do When they pick that bait up, they kind of knock it off the bottom because I don't think they like to dig into the ground to get their bait. It's kind of weird. It's like you know, dog will eat dog food off of the ground, but they prefer it in a bowl or something that's clean, and they don't have to eat grass and everything else with it. But um, The stripers seem to eat it really good, free lined. But if you have current and you got to use weight, try to go as less as possible, and uh, that's that would be my best best option for somebody or telling them what to do. Um, But the the no the no weights by far king than having weight.
0: And and again, also uh, two things here. One, with you kind of free lining like this, is this something that can be done um, I'm trying to think how to, how to put this out there um, well, actually okay b- before I go to that the other thought the kind of second point I was going to get to real quick is cut would you ever put cut bait below a balloon or a board is it always you're casting it out you're putting it on the bottom every single time
2: um, I will put cut bait on a balloon um, later in the year like I was talking about they kind of get on cut bait So I'll kind of preset my balloon, like say my baits, um, say the water depth's 20 foot. So I'm going to put my bait at like 19 to 18 foot, where it's just drifting perfectly right off the bottom and kind of cruising. And I've noticed that they will hit it. Now, they don't hit it as good as they will a whole skipjack, but they will hit it if they're starved to death. Um, Now, people run planer boards with cut bait, but they have these things called dragon rigs. And I said, you can run it that way, but they're not just strictly... Um, throwing it out there and pulling a piece of bait in suspended, say you're fishing 25 foot and putting it at six foot. I've never seen that. I've never had luck doing it. If I have tried it because I said, I will just kind of get my curiosity level goes up, see if they will hit it. But I think it has a lot to do with cut bait is the freshness of it. Um, I've noticed right now, like, so if I have a skipjack that just died and I cut him up, he will get bit 10 times better than as a skipjack that died two or three days ago, and there's not a lot of scales on them. It's like them scales hold that oil in, so that fresh bait, say you get live bait still, you have live bait in your tank or something, cut them strictly right there and then thaw them, and that's how you're getting them stripers rather than that older bait. But I said you can catch them off frozen. I've caught them off frozen bait a lot of times. Um, It just depends on how hungry the fish are and how many fish is in that area.
0: Okay, very cool. And um, also – if you're casting, like, say you're not fishing, like, super deep water and you're getting this bait down there. Like, you're talking, like, you know, fishing around flats and stuff like that sometimes. Is it is there a certain time allotment you will leave that bait in the water before you freshen it up with a new piece?
2: Yeah, so strippers, it seems like to me, like, and if if I'm not getting bugged by catfish, like channel catch or anything, I'll keep it out there. Now, a lot of times in my perspective is, if my baits are out there, like, 15, 20 minutes, that's normal. And they haven't been hit. Give them time. I always give it about an hour uh, without refreshing because it, it, it always lasts. But I said, if I got an abundance of bait, then I'll obviously refresh like every 20 minutes. But in the back of my head, every time I'm doing that, I'm like, they could be a stripper just sitting there waiting to eat that, you know, swarming it right there. And I'm just pulling it away from them because a lot of times I'll be like, okay, I need to refresh bait because catfish packed me to death. And I'll be reeling like a head in and all of a sudden they'll take it out of my hand. Like the fish will literally charge the bait to eat it and I'll catch them reeling that bait in. It's like, they knew that bait was in there. They smelled it, they seen it, the, the visual of it, and they obviously wanted it. And it was cut in chunks, but um, it's, just pre- it's just preference. Um, some people I know like to keep them out and never even reel up and just sit there all night for six hours and, and finally get uh, the bite they're looking for. And some people are like, every 20 minutes refreshing. Um, the freshest is always best, you know, that's king. So it's just all preference. But I like to refresh my, you know, every hour at least.
0: I've got to ask you this. Uh, I'm going to ask you to two stories. Um, first one: Have you ever, ha- well, like, what is you got any interesting bycatch with cut bait? Like, have you hooked into like a big blue cat or something like that with some cut bait before when you're trying to find strikes? Oh yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so I'll tell you two two good ones. So I, I catfish guide also. And so cut baiting all the time to catch catfish, but, um, we was up, we was up, uh, striper fishing, la- uh, last year and I think it was November and we was on this huge flat and it was like a ton of stripers eating live bait, but then they started kind of smacking at it and I said, "Do we need to cut bait. And he said, why is that? And I said, they get temperamental. I said, if they're not really, that tells me they're not really wanting to eat if they're just snipping at bait. So we pull up on the bank and i pull up on the shore and I'm throwing off into like 18, 20 foot on this flat, and um, we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, my very right rod shoots directly left. I'm like, oh, dude, giant, and it's peeling and drag. I'm talking, I s- kind of thought in the back of my mind, I said, it's either a hundred pound catfish, or it's a 60 plus pound striper. I said, because I said, I've never seen one pull this way, and we're just sitting there, keep on fighting it, and I'm like, I was like, dude, I got to pull anchor, because I'm starting to see like not, I can't see my spool, but I know I'm getting to that level where it's like, okay, he's getting kind of too far out there. And I said, there's a lot of trial and error between us. So I said, pull the rods up, guys. And we reel them up, and we're going out there and fighting it. And um, he gets us out in deep water, like 50 foot off this big ledge. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what this is. And I said, I think it's just a big blue cat. And we pulled up, and it was like an 88-pounder. And I was like, <laughs> I was like geez, i geez leave I said, I've never seen a catfish pull like that. And, uh, it was just so surprising because I said they really, I wasn't in a spot known for blue cats. So it was just one of them like crazy. And my client was actually hacker to catch that blue cat. He's like, that's my dream fish right there. And I was like, well, <laughs> we are be for fishing for.
0: <laughs> oh, that's, that's awesome. That's hilarious though. The, uh, God, that's, that's crazy. Now, um, you said you had another story. What, what's the other story that you've got right there? So
2: this actually happened two weeks ago. And this is kind of the craziest thing ever is we were striper fishing in like four foot of water um we was actually on i'll tell you what reservoir it was on it was on watts bar and there had been these strippers coming in every morning on cut bait. and i was like i, was like, I told this i had a one guy and he's like man i just want to catch a few strippers and then after that we can go catfishing.'" i was sitting there and uh we got this really long pull on one i was like I and he just stopped and dropped it. And I said, man, that happens. That's how them strippers are. They'll just spit it out sometimes. And all of a sudden, that same rod, it just took off like super fast. I told him, I said, I said, just start reeling because I had circle hooks at the time. And um, this fish takes extremely uh, amount of line out, like super fast, faster than any fish I've ever had. And I'm like, I said, I have no idea what you got. I said, it ain't a blue cat. I said, it could be a flathead because they're super quick. And um, this old man... He's kind of huffing and puffing. I'm like, you all right? And he's like, yeah, man. He said, I think I got a world record on here. And I was like, I said, you could. I said, I'm, I'm not saying you couldn't. And this fish runs right at us and it just slacks line up. And he's reeling as fast as he can. He can't give up. He said it came off. And he sets his rod back in the rod holder. I was like, man, I said, that's crazy. I said, I don't know how that fish came off because it was pulling so hard. And I know it didn't break the line because I kind of pulled on the rod. and uh, And I didn't feel no, I kind of felt weight on there like two seconds later i picked the rod up and i'm thrilled it in to recast it so i'm gonna recast it and uh i handed him the rod for some reason and he says dude the line's like on the bank and i'm like what do you mean he's like i don't know it's just down the bank toward that way i said dude that fish is still on maybe and he starts reeling and it was like a 70 pound spoonbill had snagged itself and got wrapped up in a stump bed and he because he could feel it pull and i was like jeez always dude i said, I said Spoonbill. I don't even eat cut bait, but they just kind of snagged up in it. But it was like the craziest thing ever.
0: Holy crap, dude! That is that is that you talk about interesting bite catch. I, I was not expecting that at all. Holy crap! Um, that that is that is insane. Uh, now, also one thing you just mentioned, you mentioned something that I've got to ask with the cut bait. Are you free spooling, or do you have do you have your uh, reels uh, disengaged when you're uh, using cut bait?
2: So with stripers, a lot of times, if I'm not in heavy current, then yeah. And the reason I do that is just because stripers, a lot of times, will just take that bait and hold it right in the bo- like right in the tip of their mouth and kind of run off with it to get it away from other stripers. Now, if I'm in current, obviously, then I got to engage them, and I'm using circle hooks. Because um, I have, like, cut bait rods and I got live bait rods. Now, sometimes I use my live bait rods because I don't want to bring other rods because I'm not thinking about it. But there's some situations that just, like, the light switch goes off. I'm like, we need a cut bait. And then I'll just throw out and put them in free spool and just, and with the clickers on and let them go. Um, because sometimes like the, my biggest striper I ever caught the 61 pounder when it took off, it took off probably 50 yards of the line and just quit. And then I went back there and I obviously knew there wasn't nothing on because it was not continuing to pull. And um, I just left it there. I said, I'll give it five minutes and I'll recheck it and make sure it didn't pull my bait off. Then it came. Then it like, not even five minutes, it, like two minutes, it just pulled again. And I think what it was, was he would pulled that bait up and it was just drifting down back to the bottom. And by the time I got back up to the front deck to get my other rod to cast out, he'd already picked it back up and ran off with it again. There was just a little bit of slack in there. Well, there's actually a lot of slack in there. And then he just took off with it.
0: Yeah, that's actually the story I wanted you to close out with for this podcast episode is, is the 61-pounder you caught. Because remind me, isn't the world record for a landlocked striper like 68 pounds caught in Alabama?
2: It was – yeah, I think it was 69 or maybe it was 70. I couldn't remember which one it is. The guy caught it somewhere in Alabama. Some old guy um, couple – was it three years ago? Four years ago?
0: Uh, but, um, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Something like that. But – um. Tennessee state record is 65 and it was caught by Ralph Dallas and he's kind of like the OG, him and Fred McClintock are like the OGs of the striper game down here. But, um, to end the story, uh, I'll tell you the story back to, about that fish. So I was not even intending to go catch strippers that night, but I was in a, on a lake that had big ones. And, um, I was actually walleye fishing and I brought two cut bait rods and I said, I had a trip that morning and, and I'm in dead winter, February the 1st. And I'm walleye fishing in an area where there's a bunch of walleye at the time, but there was a shad spawn kind of going on because there was some warm water in the area, uh, from the, it got like super hot in February and it like, there was like shad spawn in there trying to, and, um, I kind of get there at night. I troll literally a mile with my trolling motor just to get in there to be super quiet. I was like, just in case there's a big one in this area. And I troll up here and I've kind of spot locked myself and, um, I thought, uh, two giant had like a four pound skipjack. I cut it in half and threw half the body out and half the head and the head part out. And I'm just sitting there pitch dark. My brother's supposed to meet me at nine o'clock. It's like seven 30 and I cast out there and I got a walleye about like first cast on a jerk bait and I had my side rod. just I forgot I engaged it by accident and it just doubles over and it just quit. And I was like, geez, I oh, wheeze a that striper. So I make sure I go back and push my other button in cause I was an idiot and uh, put it in freeze pulling the clickers on and like 10 minutes in zings off 50 yards gone. And I would go, I run back here real quick. And before I can engage it, it quit. And uh, I run back up there and I'm like, I ah, screw it. I said, I'll get my jerk bait back out and start casting. And I cast again and why mid cast the next time it goes off again and it don't stop. So I run back here real quick and just turn the handle and he's smoking a drag. And that's like, I uh, said, so this is a pretty good one. I was thinking like 30, 40 pounder. And, um, I didn't know how big it was exactly because it was, it ran so much line out, but I had the lightest line on that rod for some odd reason. I brought it, I think picked it up by mistake, but I had 30 pound test with a 20 pound, uh, 25 pound leader, which is rare for me to have 25 pound on there. I think it was because I was in fishing some really uh, smaller baits that day. And, um, Dude, he picked it up and he ran to town with it. And I noticed he was wouldn't really turn, which is odd because the big, like all the ones over fifty I've ever caught, they kind of do two real long runs and they won't turn right away, and then they'll kind of come back and then they'll make another long run and like uh, so three long runs typically. And this one like made an extremely long first run and never turned again and made a really really long second run and I was kind of like okay. So, maybe he's just one of them aggressive 30, 40 pounders. And then I get him about three quarter of the way back. I gain a bunch of line on him, and he just sits there, and I can feel his tail just kicking real slow. And I'm like, dude, this is a big, and it was big, big head shakes, like heavy head shakes. Kind of hard to describe, but when you catfish, you can feel them flags and then big, like big flatheads have big head shakes. And it felt like that. And there's no, there's literally no big cats on this lake. And, um, I get it. I call my brother while I'm reeling in the fish. I put him on speaker and I'm like, dude, I'm caught. I got a giant on right now. He's like, and he's cussing me. He's like bull crap. He said, I'm coming down there at nine. I got to put my kids to sleep. I was like, well, you was too late to the party. He said, I can't believe you started out me. But anyways, uh, I get that fish like a quarter ways in and he won't budge. Like it acts like I'm hung up, but I know I'm not hung up. Cause I can, I got my headlamp pointed kind of on him and it's about to die anyways. And I can just see his head, and he's kind of just sitting there in the current. I'm like, geez, dude, why ain't he moving? I said, I wonder if there's like a limb line out there he's caught on. And anyways, I I get him up to the boat because there's literally 0.2 of current in there. Like there's no current, just barely some. And I get him up to the boat, and I can just see his head, and I said, oh, he's a good one. And, you know, I was thinking like 45 pounds. Well, I have a hurt wrist at the time. I broke my hammock bone, and uh, I grab him one-handed, and I try to pull him up. And I can't, and I, and he falls out of my hand. He's so heavy. I was like, geez, always dude. And I just put two hands on it. And Corey's like, is he a big one? And I was like, dude, I said, I mean, he's pushing high fifties. And he's like, no way. I said, dude, he's heavy. And I get him and I'm trying to pull him back. And I'm like, geez, how long is this fish? And he kind of just flops his tail over the side of my boat inside of it. And he kind of just falls in there. And I have a 48 inch by 48 inch mat in there. And he like dwarfs it. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. I said, this is it. I said, I've never kept a fish in a day in my life. I kept, I've never told anybody I'd keep a fish cause I wouldn't. And I said, me and my brother had a little pack when we was younger, like when I was 15 and he was like 18, he's like, catch one over 60. We'll mount it. And, uh, cause I'm all about catch and release. And I got that fish and I'm just looking at it. I'm like, I said, he's over, he's over 55 at least. And Corey's claiming I'm an idiot still. And, uh, I have a set of bogus in there and I just sent them back literally a month ago to get calibrated in Florida. And, uh, I get them, I put, put them on there and it bounces over 60 and I'm like, Oh crap, I got issues. So I'm dialing like everybody. I know it's a game warden cause it's like at that time it's like late. It's a Sunday and I know, no, I don't really know anybody good enough to see if they'd come out, but I get a hold of a buddy of mine who's game warden. And he says, well, he said, I can tell you what to do. He should keep it in the water. And he said, I can get down there in about three hours. I was like that helps me zero because i didn't want to kill it because i wasn't for sure how big it was and uh but i put him on that bogus again and he he bounced over 60 and i was like because it's only zero it's only a 60 pound scale i wish they made one bigger but they don't but um i called game more and again i said what do you think i should do he said dude he said where'd you hook it and i said oh he choked the bait there's the bait's gone hook's gone i said i've already got the i've already cut the line he said that fish is going to die anyways he said, it's at its peak, man. He said, if you're going to keep one, he said, that's the one to keep, and I call him brother, and he said, he said man, he said, if it's already ate that bait and that hook, he said, just keep it. He said, dude, that's to be your one-mounter of your life if you think he's that big, and I said, he's over 60, and I had a um, set of catfish scales, and I had a uh, bag, like a sling, and I put them in there, and it was like 61. Uh, it was about 61 and 62, and it never locked on, so I didn't know exactly what he was, and. I said, man, I'm just going to keep it. I said, I I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I said, I don't kill fish on purpose ever. So uh, I took that fish. I left right there. And my brother said, get over my house. I want to see this fish. And uh, I get there and he said, Jesus Christ, man. He said, that's the biggest thing I've ever seen. And I was grinning ear to ear. But my brother, I think, was more happy because he's the one that got me into this fishing a long time ago, man. And uh, we ended up sending it to a taxidermist, North Carolina, a guy named Phil Hams, who's like the best in the country, which he recently passed away from cancer. And uh, he told me, he said, that fish is every bit of 62 to 65 pounds, somewhere in that range. He said, because he can measure that fish by like four or five dimensions and get almost its exact weight. But I'm claiming it's still 61 pounds because that's what that scale would jump at. I ain't going to give it 62 exactly. Uh, even though I touched that, but I think he was by measurements, he was actually 64. If you did that calculation by like the length and the width, and then you divide it by 800. But, um, you know, in the back of my mind thinking about it now, like I've always kind of second guessed myself. I said, I, what if I could have weighed that fish and my scales were off, you know, maybe it was 64, 65 pound, but you know, who knows it's done. It's over with, I can't go back now and do anything, but I got him on my wall and he looks phenomenal. And, uh, That'll be the only fish I ever mount, unless I did catch a state record. But after, but other than that, I never, I never keep another one.
0: Yeah, that is incredible, dude. What, what a freaking story! And did I did he do? Is it a full blown skin mount, or is it is it a replica? Yep.
2: Full blown skin mount. And the cool thing about Phil, he, he came when I got to his shop. He did like bobcats and uh, cougars, and well, not cougars. What do they call them? Mountain lions. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did mountain lines, and he was s- such a professional with it. Like he was like to the T he said, now nah, I want to, I need pictures of this fish. And I was like, well, is that not, he's like, he said, he said, I know he's in this wrapped up in this towel and everything. Cause there's a process we went through when we got a hold of him that next morning. Um, but he, he was like, so particular, he's like, I'm going to take this fish and I will let him dry out for like, four months to make sure all the oils are out of them. That way I, when I paint this fish, he's going to be pristine. And he said, this fish, I will actually have to build a mold because they don't make molds this big for these fish. He said, they make them from like 43 inches down for replicas. But he said, you got to go kind of to the Chesapeake to find anybody in the saltwater business that can do them have a mold this big. If you've got like a um, replica, So he built the mold for that fish, and he said, I will measure this fish, and this fish will be the same fish, same size, every part of the body that it was when it was brought to me. And it was uh, 48 and a quarter long, and it was 33 and a half uh, girth. Now, I tell everybody this, certain fish are heavier than others. Certain fish are actually less than others. Like They might have bigger girths, but if there's nothing in the stomach in there, then obviously they might weigh less. But mine, dude, biggest thing I've ever seen beside that 58 my client had, I swear it was bigger than mine, girth-wise by by a long shot. But it was just a hollow belly. But uh, he he did the best artwork I've ever seen, like the pearlescence, the pink, the purple, the blues, the gold. the uh, I mean, everything's to a T on that fish.
0: That is incredible. That is uh, a... It's unfortunate he passed away because I'm trying to find a... A really good uh, tax terms that does skin tax term. not replicas, but skin tax term. do an episode on because uh, it is such a skill set to do it and do it right and have your paintwork dialed in. Um, so yeah, that is incredible, dude. I'd, I'd love to see a photo of that of that mount too, and and uh and kind of see because uh, again like good skin taxidermy is, is super hard to find it seems like you know so, so many more people are willing to do replicas than actually the full-blown skin taxidermy um but yeah you know, that is incredible dude well i know uh, bryce we're running crazy long on this episode like crazy crazy long but yeah it's all right now i appreciate you being on here and I'm, I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed it uh as a point to wrap up here Uh, Again, if listeners are curious to, you know, even come fish with you, learn more about you, you know, how can guys get a hold of you? How can listeners get a hold of you, especially through social media and and kind of follow along with what you guys got going on at Tennessee River Monsters?
2: Yeah, so you can go on Google and search our... fishing uh fishing guide service at uh, tennessee river monsters um we're in he's located in east tennessee yeah i got instagram which i don't really post much on there it's more of myself uh, and my my life and my family uh, a lot of fish in there but um or you can go on facebook and look up bryson Driver fishing service um been a good way to contact me and my number is 865-207-8741
0: yeah awesome well bryson i've I... I greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. This is uh, it's been incredible. Uh, definitely, we're gonna have to have you back on again. It's gonna be another episode. I got other topics <laughs> to talk to you about. But uh, listeners, if you've enjoyed the episode, um, you know make sure you share it with a buddy. And hopefully, you've been enjoying it on the Southern Outdoorsman feed. And uh, because it's on the Southern Outdoorsman feed, you can go over to the uh, you can go over and leave us a five star written review. Let us know what you like about some of these Southern Water episodes. We got a bunch more to to publish. Again, you should be finding them every other week on the feed and uh i think come this fall we're going to post some of the older episodes because i know there's going to be a lot of listeners that haven't listened to our first uh 30 plus episodes we had on the southern waters feed so that's going to be on the southern outdoorsman feed later on this fall but appreciate everybody listening and we'll catch y'all back here for the next episode from the southern waters fishing podcast
1: You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we have went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that, that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you. Whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsmen podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.